Hello and welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 169. I am your host, Noah Rochetta. And today I'm going to talk about the teaching of the 84,000 gates. As always, keep in mind you don't need to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learn to simply be a better whatever you already are. If you are interested in learning more about Buddhism, check out my book, No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners, available on Amazon, or you can just listen to the first five episodes of this podcast, and you can find those by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking on the link that says Start Here. If you're looking for a community to practice with and to interact with, consider becoming a patron by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking the link to join our community, where we do weekly Zoom calls and there's a, a study group book club as well. In the last two episodes, I shared my thoughts around the teaching of signlessness and aimlessness. These are two of the three doors of liberation. The teaching of the three doors of liberation uh, specifically refers to signlessness, aimlessness, and emptiness. So today I want to conclude my thoughts on that third door, the teaching of emptiness, uh, but specifically how it pertains to meaning and the meaning that we assign to things. And for me this can be summed up in the teaching of the 84,000 gates. A quick recap. So the three doors of liberation are emptiness, signlessness, and aimlessness. Uh, starting with aimlessness, this is having no goal. Uh, this can be summed up in the expression, having no destination, I am never lost. Uh, and That's the one or two podcast episodes ago I talked about aimlessness. And then signlessness, again, this is the reminder that the outer appearance of things, in other words, their sign, can mislead us to thinking that this thing that you see is permanent. The example given is that a cloud looks like a cloud, but if you look at a cloud long enough, the cloud becomes rain. Rain can become the water that uh, is absorbed by plants. Uh, plants become the thing that get eaten by animals, and so on. So this thing that you see isn't always what it is. It becomes other things. In other words, a cloud doesn't die, it transforms into something else. The form changes, but uh, nothing is ever lost. And when we realize signlessness, then we no longer feel attached to the temporary form that we're looking at in that moment. Uh, and again, the, there's an expression that the Buddha is supposed that supposedly the Buddha said, where there is a sign, there is deception. Uh, and I like that because it's a reminder that change, uh, change is a constant, impermanence is the nature of reality, and the thing that you see, no matter how permanent that thing might feel, like rain is rain, rain is also all these other things that are not rain. Uh, so that's a summary of the first two, and then the third one, or the the one we haven't discussed or that I haven't shared thoughts of, is emptiness. And emptiness or formlessness, sometimes it's referred to, again, I think hints on this notion of interdependence. It's the understanding that a thing isn't permanently a thing without being, without seeing it through the lens of the causes and conditions that make that thing the thing that it is. So with the analogy of the cloud, time is what separates 
you know, a cloud from rain. They're the same thing, but in different times, right? So time is the differentiator uh, with signlessness, where form, I think, is the di differentiator with emptiness. And the analogy that I use often here is, again, the car. You can take a car and separate it into all of its parts, and um, and now you're you're in the same dilemma. If a cloud, what is, you know, if you look at a cloud, and at one point cloud is rain, they're the same thing, but at different times. If you look at a car and you break it into its form, its causes and conditions, what you see here is that when when you take a thing and you break it down into its parts, you don't see the thing anymore. You can see a car, but then you break it down, and now you can see an engine, you can see a wheel, you can see a window. But those things aren't the car anymore. Those are the things that they are. But you break those down as well, right? You take the engine and break it down, and now you no longer see an engine. You see a piston, and you see a, a carburetor, and you see all these different things that make an engine an engine. So the idea here with emptiness is that um, we see the thing, and we give it meaning. This thing, with uh, the, all these things that come together make this thing, and this thing we call this or that. We ascribe meaning to things. Uh, so I've talked about the car analogy many, many times. I want to bring up another perspective or another analogy here, and that's the teaching of the 84,000 gates. So what are the 84,000 gates? Well, there's a story in several Buddhist traditions that say the Buddha taught that there were 84,000 gates or 84,000 methods that lead to awakening. And I believe the 84,000 gates is intended to be a method or an expression to imply that there are numerous methods to learn about the nature of reality. I don't believe it's meant to be interpreted as an exact number. In other words, here are the 84,000 methods, and then you can describe all of them but there's not 84,001. I don't believe that to be the case. For me, this is just an expression, again, that was meant to imply, hey, there are numerous ways to arrive at the same place. And the irony here is that my interpretation of this is merely one of many interpretations of this teaching, which only strengthens the idea that there are many ways to see the same thing, right? I may see this and say, oh, well, what that means is there are a lot of ways. Someone else may see this teaching and say, no, it means there are exactly 84,000 ways. Not one more, not one less. So I'm reminded of a poem or a, a quote by Rick Fields uh, where he says, 84,000 gates to the Dharma, and mine is best. What a waste. Do your practice, enjoy your life, and let the world argue and discuss itself to death. Uh, close quote. Again, for me, what this means is, look, there are a lot of different ways uh, getting caught up in the interpretation of things. I, I, I don't feel that that's useful or necessary. Uh, if somebody else wants to, fine, go for it. So the 84,000 gates, again, for me, is similar to the teaching that the Buddha gave of the blind men describing the elephant. And you'll recall what happens here is that none of them are completely right and none of them are completely wrong. It's just where you stand in space and time limits your ability to uh, describe reality as it is, or in this case, the, the elephant as it is, because you have an incomplete picture. So for me, again, what this 
what this alludes to, this nature of emptiness, is that things are empty of meaning until we come along and we assign meaning to the things that we see. Now, one of the greatest examples of this for me is the way that we interpret the night sky. There's a website called Figures in the Sky. Uh, it talks about how cultures across the world have seen their myths and their legends in the stars. And on, on this website, it, it explores 28 different cultures and what they each saw in the skies, or in other words, in the patterns in the stars. Um, and this is fascinating to me. Have you ever gone out and looked at the night sky and you look at the stars and if you look at it long enough, you kind of start to see a pattern or a figure in the stars. We do this with the clouds too, right? If you were out there looking at the clouds, some may say, oh, that one looks like a mouse, and someone else would see a figure that looks completely different. Uh, it could be that when someone tells you what they see, and you look at it hard and long enough, you say, oh, hey, I, I think I can see that too. But it's also likely that you'll say, I cannot imagine how on earth you're seeing that. I just don't see that. Well, it's no different with constellations, and this website uh, points this out. It, it shows how various cultures have formed different stories, and they've pieced together, together different constellations from the stars, even though everyone is really looking at the same thing uh, in the night sky, right? There are different interpretations that arose to explain what each of them saw, and the diversity and the wide range of our human imagination, coupled with the unique cultural lenses that each culture has and the beliefs that each culture has, resulted in a description of the night sky that is sometimes completely different across each culture or each time frame, where some cultures ended up seeing figures that resemble shapes, others saw figures that might resemble uh, kings or animals or mythical gods or beings. And again, it's very much like the blind men attempting to describe the elephant, or like us sitting outside and looking at the clouds and trying to agree on what shape we see in the clouds. So if this is the case with looking at constellations, and I find this fascinating because, again, you can look at one culture and they'll describe what looks like a pan, right? The Big Dipper. Uh, another culture will say this is the, um, you know, the, the two diamonds or the elk or, uh, you know, reading through on that website, it was very interesting to see the various explanations completely uh, different from each other. Some some of these are like, one's totally out of left field and the other one's totally out of right field. And it makes sense in their specific interpretation. If you were of that culture of that time, it might make sense to you. Others may see it and say, that makes zero sense to me. Now, if this is the case when we look at the night sky and we see the stars, Remember, we're looking at the same thing, right? For the most part, uh, it's the, the stars that you see. It's almost like, well, there's the painting in the sky. It's no different. Uh, same with, with looking at the cloud. It's the same cloud. Two people can look at the exact same cloud, and you're going to see different things. That, to me, is fascinating. If that's the case with a cloud and with the stars in the night sky, how does that, I mean, how can that not be the case when you when you try to start doing much bigger things like extrapolating meaning out of, a, out of reality and trying to come up with an explanation of the, the, the meaning of life? Why are we here? Uh, what happens when we die? 
um, we, we, we start to extract out of our cultural lens and our, um, you know, out of everything that makes us who we are, not just as an individual, but also as an, as a culture. And we try to assign, ascribe meaning and say, well, then this, it must mean this, this is what I'm seeing. And then everyone around you says, oh, I think you're right. I, maybe I see that too. But someone else says, no, I see this other thing. And then they have a cluster of people around them who say, yeah, I think that's how it makes sense to me too. I mean, could, could that be the origin of religions? You know, it makes perfect sense to me. And I believe that any, uh, any attempt to describe or to ascribe meaning to reality, it's going to be similar to how these cultures have, have uh, interpreted different versions of the night sky. And again, like the analogy of the blind man and the elephant, none of them are right and none of them are really wrong but they are empty in the sense that they only make sense in the context of interdependence. In other words, if I am of this culture that has this belief and lived in this time, then that picture makes sense to me. But you start to remove some of these causes and conditions and the picture changes. It, you know, If I were a, um, a Hawaiian who looked at the night sky through the lens of the ancient Hawaiian culture, you know, I may see things that someone from another culture simply won't see. Um, and I like that. In the book, The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama and Howard Cutler, in one of the final chapters, the Dalai Lama actually talks about, in the context of religion, how he believes that however many people there are, that's about how many religions there should be. So if there are 7 billion people on the planet, there are 7 billion flavors of, of religion, or what we could call spirituality. And I like the term spirituality. I think I mentioned in my, my very first book, for me, the notion of spirituality is uh, two things. It's how we relate to anything that's not us, and how we make sense of, of the bigger picture uh, outside of ourselves. So connection and meaning, for me, is what spirituality is. The meaning I give to life and reality and the connection I feel to, to anything beyond me. And in that sense, my flavor of spirituality is very unique. It's, it's, it applies to me, and it has this hint of what I think the Buddha expressed, that there are 84,000 paths. Um, there are a myriad of ways, and none are right and none are necessarily wrong, it requires knowing your specific, what works for you. And that's what the Dalai Lama hinted at in his book, in that final chapter, where he talks about how um, there are different flavors of spirituality and, and what works for you is suited for you because you are unique, right? You, you are the combination of your family views, your genetics, your uh, cultural norms, uh, perhaps your religious upbringing, um, your lived experiences, which again are unique, all the things that make you uniquely you mean that what you see when you look at the night sky is pretty unique. You're seeing what makes sense to you. And if you extract out of that some kind of a pattern and suddenly you say, ah, I see it. I see Orion's belt or whatever it is that you see. It's unique. It's unique to you. Now, that doesn't mean someone else won't see the same thing. Maybe someone else will see the same thing, but that's just the one view. Now look, you know, look 
20 feet to the left. Look at that pattern. Oh, maybe we still see the same thing. Now look 50 feet uh, in the other direction. What do you see there? At some point, you'll start to see, well, we see 9 out of 10 things the same, but then there's the one thing we see differently. That unique formula is so, it's so vast, right? That if you look in the night sky, it's not that you can see 10 objects. You could, you could see a, a countless, unlimited amount of shapes and objects. And I think you would probably agree with me that if we all looked at the night sky and listed what are the things that you see, that list would be unique. Your list of 100 things compared to um, any other person on the planet, it's not going to be the same list. So that's what the Dalai Lama was saying in his book, like if there are 7 billion people, there are 7 billion views. Um, so keeping that in mind, um, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? And, and this is also expressed in other ways. Like if you were to describe the night sky, that's one. But if you were to ask someone, what is, you know, what is the proper way to love someone or to be loved? We know that that's also different. In fact, there's a book called the, the Five Love Languages or the Love Languages by Gary Chapman, where he talks about five specific love languages. The, uh, they are words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, acts of service, and receiving gifts. And the whole notion of this book is that we all have different a different scale where one of those five is the most dominant, another one is the second most dominant. Like you could rank them, right? And you could you could take someone where my formula, for example, might be um, number one is words of affirmation, number two is quality time, number three is physical touch. Where for you it might be number my number three is your number one, and and there we have a different formula. Even outside of the order of the formula, I I think you have a, a different um, number that would represent the strength of each one. So let's say one of those, let's say words of affirmation for me is 80%, and second would be whatever second is 20%. For you, it might be 79% and 32%. So now we have the same ranking, but, it, but they're still different because the percentages of each one might be slightly off. So this is something simple that's been you know, distilled into five languages, but it's not five. It doesn't mean everyone falls within one of five different ways. No, there are countless ways to take that and and spell it out into the exact formula of what it means to love or what it means to be loved. Now, if that's the case with something like love that seems so universal, of course that's going to be the case with something much more... Um, much more difficult to pin like a belief, like religious views, your interpretation of the night sky. Of course, we're going to have 7 billion explanations of it because there's 7 billion people or whatever the exact number is. So again, tying all of this back to this notion of emptiness, for me, what all of this does, what it reminds me of is that there are 84,000 ways, there are, in other words, there are countless ways to understand or to see something. And my way of seeing it is mine. Now, when I think of emptiness, what I'm reminded of is that my way isn't right or wrong. It's just what makes sense to me, but it's, it's empty of meaning. Only I can give it the 
ultimate meaning that says, my way is right. That's meaning, again, it doesn't mean that that's, that that's um, incorrect. It means it's if it's correct for me, it doesn't have to be correct for you. And I, I think that's at the heart of this notion of, of emptiness, is that the car isn't really a car, right? The car is actually a motor and windows and wheels and tight. Well, but the, the motor isn't actually a motor. Oh, that's right. It's carburetor, this, this. Uh, well, a carburetor isn't actually a carburetor, right? It's needles, it's springs. And suddenly you, you realize, wow, everything works this way. Uh, things are empty until we give it meaning. We put, we assemble these things together and now we call it this. And we say it's this because it does that. Yes, that's true, but it's still empty because you can always tear it down and deconstruct into its causes and conditions and you're left with a new thing that isn't the thing that you started with. And I think that's really at the heart of the notion of emptiness, at least for me, how it makes sense in my mind. And I think of the meaning I give to all things, right? When, you know, in, in the day-to-day -day application of this, you're driving along and a car cuts you off, there are right away meanings that arise. And these arise out of past experiences, cultural norms, but that meaning is empty. I don't actually know what's going on in that car. And I've used this analogy a lot. You guys should be familiar with it. We don't know if that person's in a rush to get home because of an emergency, if they're just a jerk and they always do that, or countless other explanations. The point isn't that I shouldn't ascribe meaning to things. For me, the point is that when I do ascribe meaning to things, because we all do, that's a human tendency, I can pause and say, yeah, but do I really know that that's what it is? And I hold space for the uncertainty. Um, I do this with, I, I've learned to do this with other things. Uh, the love language is, um, is, a, is a good example here. When, when you're new and you, and you get into a relationship, you kind of think, well, this is, you know, this is the way I communicate love. If you love me, this is, you do this and you don't do that. Well, that formula is different for everyone. And that for newer couples, certainly was the case for me, I didn't really, it didn't occur to me that someone else could have a different love language. So understanding that was very helpful for me so that I could try to be more effective at communicating uh, my love language, but also interpreting my partner's love language. And imagine if we could do this with each other as cultures and as as a society, not just for love languages, but our spiritual language. In other words, the language we use to make sense of reality. Um, if I recognize that mine is empty in the, in the sense that what makes sense for me only makes sense for me, but it doesn't mean it's going to make sense for you, then I don't have to be so attached to my way being the right way. I mean, imagine if we did this with the night sky, right? And I, I look up and I see this shape and you see a different shape and then I don't want to be your friend because you're not seeing the same shape as me. That that almost seems silly, but that's exactly what we do on so many other things, so many other interpretations of reality. And I get it. There are other topics that are much more uh, affect us more than the night sky. If you see something different in the night sky than what I see, it's probably not going to affect our day to day. But if we get into political views or religious views, 
your interpretation may very well be affecting my lived experience and vice versa. But still, the, um, the understanding here that uh, I'm... I'm seeing it one way, you're seeing it another way. Let's explore this. Help me understand how you're seeing it, and and um, I'll help you understand how I'm seeing it. Imagine if we did that, rather than just immediately anchoring ourselves in, my way is the right way, my path is the correct path. I think that's what the Buddha was implying with the 84,000 gates, the 84,000 ways or paths it's saying, hey, this way is working for me, but let me let me see your way. Why is that working for you? And I may be able to say, oh, okay, well, hmm, let me try that. That way might be more effective for me. But I may also look at it and say, no, no, I definitely think that way won't work for me. And I am going to continue on my way. I've, I've used another visual that works for me in my mind. I pretend, you know, the earth is round, right? There's no, there's no specific place that says this is where you have to be. It's just where you are. And based on where you are, you may be dressed in different ways, right? If you're somewhere up north where it's really cold and the terrain is ice and snow, you wear clothing that's suitable for that terrain. Somebody who's in another part of the world that's tropical and sand and and uh, hot may be wearing uh, sandals or flip-flops or uh, a t-shirt rather than a jacket. And to simply say, hey, no, you need to be wearing a jacket because, look, we're all wearing jackets. Yeah, but we're, we're in different places. In my, where I'm standing and how life is for me, it would be completely unskillful to wear a jacket in the hot temperature. And it would also be unskillful for you to take off your jacket simply because you look at me and say, well, he's not wearing a jacket, so I'm going to take my jacket off. So again, it becomes a very introspective thing. Um, what's working for me? Why does it work for me? Uh, could there be another way that works for me? And not getting caught up in the, this has to be this way. Uh, that for me is, is, is emptiness. It's just recognizing things are because of how things are, but it does, it's not, a, there's no permanence to it that says the answer is always wear a jacket. And it's also incorrect to say the answer is always don't wear a jacket. It, the answer is it depends and that's what's going to happen if you look at the night sky. What do you see? It depends. <laughs> if you look at the cloud, what, what do you see? It depends, right? And that's emptiness for me. There is no solid, this is what it always is. There's just the, it, it depends, right? Factors, causes and conditions, uh, time, space and time, all these different things. So, those are the thoughts I wanted to share. Now, once you couple these three, these three concepts together, emptiness, aimlessness, and signlessness, the idea here is that if you, if you can keep those things in mind and look through those doors, those lenses, uh, you're going to start to have probably a more skillful view of reality. And again, for me, what that looks like in day-to-day -day application is that the skillful way to look at the night sky, for me, is to look at it see how it appears, what do I see in the night sky, but then not attach to it and say, well, I see a bear in that, uh, in that pattern of that constellation, therefore, everyone needs to see that bear. No, I could maybe help you understand why I see it like that, but it's totally okay if you don't see a bear, and instead you see a, a chair or something that's completely different from the type of shape that I'm seeing. That's That's fine. What we want to do is be able to 
be more effective at communicating. Emptiness implies a sense of non-attachment, meaning I don't have to attach to my way being the only way and get all bent out of shape if you don't see the bear. Um, and that's been very beneficial in my lived experience, uh, especially in a marriage where we're two different people attempting to do the same thing, right? Raise our, our family and our kids and we're living in a, in a very similar set of circumstances because we're partners on the same boat, but we're both looking out and seeing different things. We're both interpreting different things at all times because we're two different people. And if there are 7 billion people, there are going to be 7 billion interpretations of what we're seeing. That for me, again, is the, uh, uh, the teaching of emptiness, the teaching of the 84,000 gates. So hopefully you can take some of these ideas and experience a little bit less of the strong sense of attachment that we feel sometimes to saying, if I'm interpreting this or I'm seeing this the way that I'm seeing it, it must be the right way. And instead saying, if I'm seeing it this way, sure, that's how I'm seeing it, but it doesn't mean anything. It's empty of meaning until I give it the meaning that I'm giving it. And sometimes that meaning we give things is pretty... Uh, is, is the cause of a lot of our problems. All right, well, that's all I have to say about this topic, and uh, that's all I have for this episode, but I do look forward to sharing more thoughts on another topic in another episode at some point later in time. Thank you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>